Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and our guest today is Dave Chase. Dave identifies himself as a hope merchant. He is the CEO and co-finder of the Health Rosetta, which is an ecosystem of scaling adoption and practice for nonpartisan fixes to our healthcare system by enabling public and private employers and unions to reduce their health benefits spending by 20% or more while improving the quality care of plan members. He is also a consultant to the TV show The Resident on Fox TV. He's a consultant to the writing team and executive producer, drawing from his research for his recent books, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, which was published in 2017, and The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, Healthcare is Stealing the American Dream, published in 2018. He is a professional speaker and a mindset shifter. He understands the idiosyncrasies of healthcare without being shackled by them. His talks have led to major strategy shifts and new business initiatives inside of leading healthcare organizations. He is simultaneously incredibly disappointed by the underperformance of the health ecosystem and super optimistic about what is possible when we harness the smarts, passion, and determination of the clinicians that underpin our system. He is also the executive producer of The Big Heist, which will be a documentary Hollywood movie. A successful crowdfund has led to two outcomes thus far. One, collaboration with a former Disney and Sony president to develop a film and series. And two, serving as a consultant to the resident where storylines have been informed by his Big Heist research. He is a graduate of the University of Washington Michael G. Foster School of Business, majoring in mathematics and finance. And he was also an 800-meter and a 4x400-meter relay competitor for the University of Washington Huskies Pac-12 track and field team. Earlier in his career, he has been a high-level executive at Microsoft and the CEO of a startup. He lives in Bellingham, Washington with his wife and two teenage children. Thanks, Dave, for being part of the program today. Our listeners are looking forward to hearing you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Looking forward to our chat. It's been a couple of years since our uh, chat on stage at the Graham Sessions. That's that's true. That was that was a great time. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from you. Uh, if we are going to move the needle in solving the opioid crisis in this nation, where does the leadership come from to do this, in your opinion? I think it's a bottom-up thing. I mean, the the there's probably two dimensions to that. There's the public one, which is the mayors, you know, around the country where they're really feeling the effects and the other that, and, and people are aware of that. The one that they're less aware of is employers. And the fact of the matter is if you look at the opioid crisis, overwhelmingly the people impacted are working age people and their dependents. It's actually been our employer health plans uh, that have funded and fueled the opioid crisis, unfortunately. Of course, no employer intended that. Um, but as I looked at the, the problem and realized that it was being greatly oversimplified by the media and government, uh, I recognized that the key unwitting, and I emphasize unwitting, but the key unwitting enabler of 11 of the 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis were employers. It's their dollars. And you know, I'm sure we'll get into some of the details on that. But uh, that's a real gut punch, you know, to companies to realize that issue. And I haven't met a CEO who hasn't had some personal connection to the opioid crisis. So that's where I believe it's got to get, um, you know, really impacted, recognizing the systemic issue. This isn't, you know, Zika or Ebola or something where it's a government only response that can get the job done. Yeah, well, I think I've heard you say before that. Any CEO that runs a company that uh, has uh, medical benefits coverage for their employees who doesn't think they're in the healthcare business is wrong because uh, it's such a high spend for them and, and they are in the healthcare business whether they think they are or not. Yeah, and there was a chapter title in my book that said to that, and that's without question the one that's resonated the most with companies is that realization, gosh, it's the second or third biggest cost after payroll. Um, and what they allow to happen for a variety of reasons, they would not accept that in any other area of their supply chain. And 
you know, every CEO says employees are our most valuable asset. Well, we're not stewarding that asset very well if we're producing bankruptcy and the worst outcomes in the developed world. And, you know, and I could go on and on about how poorly performing our status quo health plans are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've stated uh, that primary care physicians are the key to getting health care back in the hands of healthcare providers to improve care. So how will this decrease the cost of health care in America by putting more emphasis on primary care? Yeah, I mean, it's really there's three pillars to proper primary care. Unfortunately, over the last 20 plus years, we've destroyed primary care in this country in well-functioning primary care, which there are some examples in our country, but you look outside as well. Over 90% of the issues that people enter the healthcare system for can be fully addressed in a proper primary care setting. So that's kind of the first pillar is those acute issues that come up. Uh, rather than primary care as just a tool for, you know, get people in and out so they can get the high margin stuff that the health system has to offer, you know, and that's why a lot of health systems have gobbled up these primary care practices because they can generate five to 10 million of referral value every year. Um, so that's the first pillar. Let's do a lot better job on uh, acute issues. And it's just, it's a less expensive setting. They can do a great job on that. Um, and right there, half the ER visits go away. A lot of people go to the ER, not because they don't have insurance, it's just they can't get into primary care because it's the waiting room is clogged with people who don't need to be there, keeping the people who need to get in there in a timely manner there. Um, second area of savings opportunity and really, you know, nipping a huge issue. I don't know if nipping the bud because it's already a big problem is, is kind of the rising risk that lifestyle disease. When you see great primary care, like the ones I've personally experienced with my, myself and my, my folks is they weave in things like PT, behavioral health, health coaches, social workers, pharmacy, and uh, when you do that, because our system is so out of control, I mean, just saw a thing on LinkedIn today. In fact, there was a, one of these direct primary care docs said he'd fired um, eight doctors for this patient. And I, you know, being competitive, I, I had to top them and said, well, here's a story I wrote in Forbes a few years back where this DPC doc fired 10 doctors. You know, it's just like, they're managing people like they're a bunch of disconnected body parts when in fact they're a whole. And so you just do those things about people with hypertension and, and, you know, diabetes and things like that. You can have a big impact, um, both, you know, sort of stemming progression of disease, but better managing where it already exists. And then the third, which is almost always forgotten is, when you have proper primary care, they can help guide people on those complex medical conditions, you know, the cancers, the organ transplants. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book that I have that gets at the fact that five to eight percent of the employees in a given year consume 50 to 80 percent of the dollars. And it's very easy for a something simple that you would certainly know about, like lower back pain, um, to turn into some, you know, spinal surgery that nine out of 10 times should never should have happened, right. you know, and maybe as a bonus opioid addiction, you know, as, as a, you know, after dinner meal. Um, and so those trusted unconflicted primary care docs can get people to the high value centers, you know, the Virginia Masons, the Mayos, the folks that don't over treat and get people to the right place. I mean, Speaking of lower back pain, you know, to Virginia Mason's credit, you know, they did the study with Starbucks that found that 90% of the spinal procedures they're doing didn't help at all. You know, PT and other approaches would have been more effective. And so they changed their ways, even though that hurt their their bottom line because they, you know, lived their mission, you know, versus having it just be a cute thing on a wall. Yeah, no, I think you're you're so right. And if you think about it, I, I think most people would really embrace uh 
Yeah, I'm a huge believer in in, um, in mindsets, as as I think you are as well. And and the mindset of going to your primary care physician as like almost more of a health coach and somebody to guide you along that that bigger uh, 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 bigger uh, idea, as opposed to just going in to to get a medication or get one little thing fixed, but looking at it as a, as a whole. I think most people would really embrace if they felt they had the time of the physician to to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we now have these kind of drive by appointments, you know, that what can you do in seven minutes? You know, when the poor uh, employed primary care doc, you know, has to meet some BS, quote unquote, productivity target. You know, that's not what they went to med school for. Um, And so once you liberate them from those scenarios, uh, you know, they can do amazing work. You know, and I've, like I said, I've personally experienced that through my dad's Parkinson's journey and what a difference that made. And, you know, by the way, probably have saved the taxpayers a quarter million dollars in the process versus what was happening in kind of the volume centric system that he was in, even though, uh, you know, it was in a well regarded multi specialty clinic. It wasn't some dirtbag operation, but unfortunately, you know, good people operating a flawed model, you know, still create issues. Yeah, and, and I think that we've both experienced uh, the unhappiness of physicians not really uh, enjoying their 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 uh, positions or their careers anymore. Do, do you think it's changing? Are we making uh, some changes that bring the joy back to, to that uh, wonderful profession, or are we still really struggling in that sense? Well, it's early, right? So there are some you know huge momentum and success around things like direct primary care and you know, it's it's almost like a Lazarus-like moment for these people in terms of they were on the cusp of just leaving the profession or, you know, whatever, go work for some tech company in healthcare or something like that because it would just – it's sort of their soul had been sucked out of them um, to doing that. Now, they're not yet – you know, that's not the norm yet. Um, it's a trend. It's an early trend. So we still have a long ways to go there. And, you know, it's, it's really sad because these are – you know, some really dedicated people. And we literally have record levels of burnout and even suicide amongst docs and particularly primary care docs where they're spending two hours of bureaucracy for every one hour patient time. I mean, that's absurd. They didn't go to med school to be glorified billing clerks. Yeah, that's crazy. You've been an executive in a large company and led a division with revenues in the billions. You were also CEO of a startup that you grew and eventually sold. So what did you learn about leadership in those roles that surprised you? Hmm, That's a good question. Uh, It depends on the stage of the process. I mean, I think early on when I was a young manager, uh, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was learning just how different people are motivated very differently and want different levels of guidance. And so it was really... um, you know, sort of tuning my level of involvement, you know, with them and guidance. Um, And then, you know, more recently, it's been much more of a big scale, you know, and not necessarily leadership through sort of, um, you know, reporting chain, but more leadership through um, shared interest and shared goals. And, you know, I studied a lot on social movements and and public narratives. And, and I would say probably the single biggest surprise in there, there's a guy, Marshall Gans, uh, who's out of the Harvard Kennedy School that has done some terrific work on public narrative. And probably the biggest surprise was how people wanted to hear my personal story. I was like, it's not about me. Like, I really don't, you know, it's one of the reasons I like track and field, you know, yeah. it was a stopwatch baby. Like I didn't have to kowtow to any coach or whatever. It was like the stopwatch doesn't lie. Like, I really don't want to hear about myself. And, but then that was, I was sort of disabused of that notion. Like they, they, they won't really, you know, the framework he has is it's called the, the, well, it's this public narrative is what's referred to in the story of self, us, now. And the self is, what was your journey? I actually wrote about that in the preface of my book. It's almost like my my final paper for this 
six-month uh, story academy I went through, um, where, frankly, I didn't even fully appreciate what it was that made me tick. Like, why was I maniacal about this stuff? And so they went through this whole, you know, sort of self-discovery process that uh, it's like, oh, you know, the fact that I'd had 10 friends my age or younger die, you know, before I was, you know, 40 and the ripple effects of that and some other experiences, um, <clears throat> it started to explain even to me why that stuff mattered. And then as I'm going through the course, I'm not even through it. I was like, okay you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my story, you know, before I actually get into it. And, and, and even just the way I describe it before I get into it as well, it was getting into it by telling my story and it was unbelievable. Like immediately afterwards, the response that I was getting from people on how it touched them and resonated and activated them. I mean, really the the journey that I try to take people on is, you know, when it comes to healthcare is inform, enrage, empower, activate. And in order to do that, I needed to tell my own story. What was my sort of, you know, road to, Dam to Damascus moment? Um, and, and what was the sort of potential disconnect with the values I was raised that that spurred me to action and that type of stuff, which you might call soft stuff and, you know, pretty high level that has resonated way more with people than, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, cause I'm a, you know, as a math minor and finance major and, and, you know, sort of a analytic geek, like I thought that stuff mattered. And it, of course it does matter, but you know, the human aspect matters a whole lot more. No, you're right on. And what you're describing is people have often asked me, and I think I've discovered this over my career. And now as an executive coach, I try and coach it as much as I can. Storytelling is really one of the, the most powerful leadership tools you can have. And what you just described is you're telling a story, you're sharing some human experience. And I think that's what people want. And that's what they embrace. Um, as we know, you can have all the facts and figures you want, and, and it doesn't touch people sometimes. It's that human element that you just described that really moves people, and uh, I think you described it perfectly. No, thanks. Yeah, it was it was definitely a, a surprise for me, but I'm I'm happy to be surprised. And we have a philosophy that we stole from Mark Andreessen of strong opinions weekly help. You know, so always happy to be you know informed about a better better approach. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've started a movement to create a Hollywood documentary to get the message out to the masses on how serious the healthcare system really is broken and, and what we need to do to fix it. So uh, where are you in that process and um, are you getting closer to bringing it to market? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's interesting how you go on these journeys and, and sometimes I will describe what I'm doing with my arms sort of spread open and say, I'm headed that direction. You know, maybe it's a 30 degree angle I've made with my arms. And over time, you know, I kind of bring my arms together to like, this is where we're specifically headed, but it's about forward action and, and getting informed. And so where we're at is, you know, we, A, we recognize that this is a challenge, you know, first of all, you know, I've been pretty provocative on it and have said that I believe the status quo healthcare system is the greatest immediate threat to our country. And, you know, I have a chapter in my book, you know, America's gone to war for less than what healthcare has done. And I think I make a persuasive argument for that. Um, and but we recognize this is a challenge on the scale of things like civil rights better food, energy independence, climate change, these type of things. You know, these are not quick fix deals. These are 20-year journey type of things. And and as I mentioned earlier, studying these movements, um, we'll take civil rights, right? So there was a grassroots movement kind of happening largely off the radar for most people. Uh, you know, what set MLK apart was – yeah, sure, he was doing some terrific organizing, but this was a guy who understood how to use media and create a moment. You know, back then it was the, 
you know, evening news in the morning newspaper. You know, today he'd probably be on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and and so uh, he, what he did was create that catalytic moment where suddenly you couldn't not know about what was going on. And and so he did that. So what that means for us is there is this grassroots movement that we've got going. You know, we've, we're, you know, a couple years into it really in earnest, got about 4 million lives in terms of employee lives into it, which is given we've been self-funded bootstrapped is a nice start. We've got a long, long ways to go. Um, and then with respect to the media, um, you know, I've published a couple books and they've done really well. And uh, there's, gosh, I think about 50,000 copies are now out there of the two books. And so that's that's created a ripple. And then with respect to the, the sort of film side of things, uh, there's I've become a consultant to a show that is, uh, you know, just two seasons in. It's got about 10 million people a week watching it called The Resident. And, you know, people who watch it, you know, will sometimes talk to me after a show like, oh, I bet that was from you. Um, and by no means am I, you know, claiming credit for a lot of the storylines, but there's definitely ones that had a significant impact on. Um, there's also some terrific uh, reporting that you know, I've been a source for that's that's going on. And then, um, uh, you know, and that's that's reality these days is some of these TV shows can reach a tremendous audience. And we originally started out as a documentary, um, maybe mockumentary, but what we realized and we got this a lot of response to this crowdfund we did um, was if you want to, you know, back to storytelling, if you want to tell a particular story, it's hard to do in a documentary because it's just kind of the story is there what it is, right? And whereas a scripted narrative, you can kind of control that. And so some of that's sort of feeding into certainly the books um, and the TV show. Uh, and then I've got a, a, a concept that I'm kind of shopping right now that um, what can I say about it? I mean, it's going to evolve, so it's probably not really giving away anything. But uh, think of it as sort of a um, you know, near-term sci-fi uh, deal of given decisions being made or not made today, what does that mean? Not in a hundred years, but like five, 10, 15 years. And so there's some things going on there that, um, you know, that's part of what we're doing is sort of ringing the alarm. Like this is really bad, you know, and look at what the trajectory we're on for millennials and, you know, we're on a trajectory where they're indentured servants to the healthcare system, given the percentage of their lifetime earnings that will go to healthcare. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, but there will be severe civil unrest if we don't course correct. Um, and we're seeing little snippets of actually more than little snippets of it now. Um, and so that's where, you know, again, a, a TV show or film can have that, impact where the grassroots movement's going and and i joke about nobody would mistake me for brad pitt it took him like <laughs> 10 years 10 years for his last film to get out so you know, that's one where you don't control as much so you know we're doing a lot of stuff in the in the meantime as well oh well maybe not brad pitt but i gotta tell you your headshot is awesome you kind of look like a rock star in that thing it's uh <laughs> i think you got potential so keep that in mind okay i'll work on it well photoshop must have done the explanation on that <laughs> but uh seriously uh you've also been a real strong voice on social media uh you know how does how, how do you think that has helped is it helped as much as you thought it would is it uh frustrating what, what what's your take on you know kind of the twitter and linkedin and and facebook uh type of approach to what you're trying to get out to the masses yeah i mean it can kind of can be a rorsatch test right depending on what what uh how you use it you know for example twitter i use in a really weird way by comparison to most people you know i have this self-imposed uh follow limit of only 100 people 
and it forces me because I want to add people. I want to have different people. I rotate through there and it kind of forces me to weed and feed. Um, and so I've never found a more valuable tool for keeping up on industry trends and industry developments. Um, you know, I weigh in as well, <clears throat> you know, I've got a good amount of following there. Um, I would say the thing that's been a surprise over the last few years is how important LinkedIn has become. Um, you know, when I talk with folks in our movement, I'm like, how the heck did you learn about this whole deal? You know, it's not like we bought a Super Bowl ad or something. Um, and I would say 90% of the time, uh, it's LinkedIn, you know, oh, I saw this or that dialogue going on. And I was like, oh, that's, I didn't know about that. And what's this health Rosetta thing? And, or who's this Dave Chase guy? Um, and so it's become a very valuable, uh, deal. Um, Facebook hasn't been as much of a factor, um, on the business side, but we haven't really invested as much there. I suspect as we get into some of the local dimensions of what we're doing, um, there are ways in which you can use that for good. Um, uh, it just hasn't been as much of a focus, you know, we kind of have finite resource and so, you know, it's been more crystal clear. And and I think of, you know, my, my sister was giving me a hard time on something I'd tweeted. She's like, you're doing important stuff, but I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, well, you know, here's the deal. I, I kind of calibrate my, my stuff based on the predominant way I use uh, Twitter and the people I think are following and the MLR is and, you know, things like that. Um, and then LinkedIn is like general business audience. So, you know, they certainly get things like EBITDA and, and shareholder fiduciary and, you know, issues like that. They may not know the guts of healthcare. Um, whereas I think of Facebook as more general public. And most of what we're doing is the first two audiences at this part of our journey and so that's kind of why we use them the way we use them. Okay. Do you think that the Medicare for all talk that's going around, the idea of that is the step that we need to take to disrupt the current system and force all stakeholders to act in a different way? Well, I think it's getting a lot of attention. Um, and I think it, it reflects a general dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, you know, we're fiercely nonpartisan in what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I actually wrote a piece back in, during the 2016 election cycle where both Bernie and Trump had come out and talked about basically, they weren't calling it Medicare for all, but it was basically single payer. And, and I said, you know, you shouldn't have such low expectations, um, was my general message in that Forbes piece. And the point was that there's three massive problems in our healthcare system. Uh, pricing failure, no correlation between what you pay and the value you receive, overtreatment, which we talked about a little bit earlier, and administrative bloat. And they're both brutally bad in both flavors, our private and our public flavor. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's go through Medicare. It's probably just as bad on the administrative bloat side, um, certainly ask doctors. It's not necessarily measured in their numbers, but in terms of the ripple effect, it's very challenging for for clinicians and doctors and whatnot uh, in general. Um, and uh, when it comes to pricing failure, a little bit better, but bad. Um, over-treatment, you know, as one doctor put it, we do stuff to seniors that we wouldn't do to a terrorist. I mean, the, it's just horrific the stories I hear because we, we are so geared towards volume and, and a whole host of other issues. And so I'm like, why on earth would we double down on that? You know, and, but I'll be just as critical on the private side. And so my thing is find the pockets of outstanding Medicare and outstanding private. Let's double down on that. And I don't care, you know, at some level who pays for it. Cause at the end of the day, we all pay for it. There's not some separate magic pot of money that pays for healthcare. I mean, a lot of people deal with it that way, like it's some abstraction. I mean, we all pay. 
Yeah, I mean, that's my point with my millennial thing and the chapter I have where, you know, the track we're on, half to two-thirds of the lifetime earnings of a millennial will go to the healthcare industry. You know, some that they see, you know, I use this iceberg metaphor, much of it below, but the numbers are really clear on it. In fact, uh, this isn't millennial specific, but just last year, the median household spent a greater percentage of their uh, income on hospitals, not healthcare overall, hospitals, than they did on federal taxes. That's pretty crazy to yeah, think about it. That is crazy. You know, I call I, that taxation without representation. <laughs> exactly. When I first met you, it's been a few years ago now, but uh, other than your own personal experience with physical therapy, uh, PT was not on your radar as a way to reduce healthcare costs and help fight the opioid crisis and some of these other things. Uh, but in your most recent book, you do mention physical therapy often. Uh, in the possible solutions. So how and why has your opinion about physical therapy changed over the last few years? It, I mean, as you suggest, I went into this opioid issue and, you know, I don't have a, you know, I'm not a representative medical device company or pharma or high tech company. I just go to the solutions. Um, and that's really the scavenger hunt I've been on the last decade is what's, who's already fixed it? Who's cracked the code? Thus, the health Rosetta name is, you know, for a lot of people, healthcare is indecipherable as Egyptian hieroglyphics. And, you know, the, the Rosetta Stone decoded that. Well, these are the people who cracked the code. And so you look at uh, Rosen Hotels, good example, where subject of my TEDx talk, case study in the book, and I had this hypothesis that if you had proper primary care, uh, you wouldn't have the opioid problem. You know, we talked about, in my view, proper primary care tightly interweaves physical therapy into it. And then I went to test that hypothesis. And, and that was a part of the answer to your question. Uh, you know, they didn't develop some anti-opioid crisis problem in our program 20 years ago before the, the crisis started. They just were common sense. And they thought that maybe they would need a PT maybe half a day a week in their clinic. Um, they're up to about 6,000, um, you know, people in their plan. And uh, they actually have a full-time PT. And then I asked them, hey, what's your opioid prescription rate? So like, well, we don't know. We'll go pull that. And they shared the, the reports. Turns out they're at one-sixth of the level of opioid prescriptions of a typical U.S. employer, um, and which puts them at about the same level as, as, say, France and Italy, where essentially there isn't a problem. And so you see that as like, oh, let's dig into that. Well. You know, what's the second most common reason people go to the doctor? Lower back pain. Uh, what's the number one driver of disability? Lower back pain. What's the number one driver of opioid prescriptions? Lower back pain. What's the evidence that opioids are the most effective treatment for lower back pain? You know, zero. It basically mass short-term pain, the way I describe it to people is if I was, you know, driving down the road and my car started making a horrible noise, sure, I could crank up the radio and drown it out. That doesn't fix the car problem. And that's what we're doing in this disaster we have where we're prescribing for things that there's very little or no evidence of. Meanwhile, the things where there's tremendous evidence for, like physical therapy, we're either not paying for it or we're making it really difficult to access. And, you know, guess what? There's a lot of margin in pills. There's a lot of margin in spinal procedures. There's not a lot of margin in PT. And so if we want to solve the problem, you know, that's why I mentioned, I think it was 56 times I mentioned physical therapy in the book. You know, it's just common sense once you start pulling on the string and look at, who solved it, what's the drivers, you know, what drives opioid prescriptions. And, you know, I mean, there's other areas like dental, but lower back pain is, is a massive one. And 80% of adults will have an acute back issue. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, I've had my own 
journey in that area. And thankfully I've avoided, um, you know, addiction or, or spinal procedures. And I've, you know, <laughs> I've been awakened as to, um, you know, what's most effective. I, I forget if I, I brought it out at that gram session, but in most of my public talks, I'll pull out this lacrosse ball that I travel with and use every day. And these were exercises that my PT gave me and it's done more than any pill or spinal injection or anything I ever got, uh, has done. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. When you get up every day to start your day doing what you do, what is the biggest challenge that you face? Hmm. Good question. What's the biggest challenge? I think it's the tyranny of low expectations, which makes no sense to me. Um, people have been so beaten down by healthcare that they've looked at it like Middle East peace, solving healthcare, like these, like solving Middle East peace. Like they'd like that solved, but it kind of seems hopeless and out of their control. A lot of people think that's the, the, that's their dynamic with healthcare. And they've just kind of put their fingers in their ears and just like, Oh, I just, I I just want to go there. Just like depresses me. And, and, and so that is the thing that ends up being this big challenge is do you know, can you actually solve this? And so, you know, the great thing is I can disabuse them of that notion, but most people, you know, march along every day and, you know, let's say you're an employer making a decision, some leadership, there's like, oh, it's, you know, whatever, we'll just shove more onto the employees back. And, you know, they have to suck it up. They have to skin the game. And the industry has been really good at blaming the victim in terms of plan design, um, you know, whether it's high deductible plans or so-called wellness programs that are anything but and rather than getting at the root issues. So that's that ends up being the biggest problem is I just don't understand why we'd have low expectations when no country spends, you know, anywhere near what we spend and no country's got more uh, passionate, talented hardworking gratification delaying clinicians than the u.s like why would we have low expectations we should have the best system in the world and but unfortunately we're paying tesla prices for yugo results and that just it makes no sense and when you're in this uh in the trenches day to day trying to make a difference in healthcare, what's your biggest fear uh biggest fear um, I'm pretty fearless. Um, and so trying to think what would be my biggest fear? Um, I, I guess it's more a fear of other people having fear, like that they, um, think that, uh, oh, this is risky. This is disruptive. Um, you know, that type of thing. They're very fearful of the, the change. And, you know, I say, well, let's talk about disruption. You know, we are the undisputed world leaders in medical bill-driven bankruptcy. No country is even close to us. And guess what? 70% of those who had medical bill-driven bankruptcies, it's like a million a year, had insurance. You know, you not that isn't disruptive, it is the fact that we have a dynamic where 60% of the workforce makes $20 an hour or less and the family of four premiums are over $20,000 and the over half of households have less than $1,000 in savings and over half of the workforce has over $1,000 deductible. So they're basically a bad stub toe away from financial ruin. That's not disruptive. Um, And so, you you know, that to me, you don't need a finance degree to to work those numbers. That math doesn't work. (laughs) Right. I mean, and I look at that and I, and that's where, you know, this pivotal day for me was March 9th, 2016. It was the day after the Mar- the uh, Michigan primary in the presidential election, and Bernie and Trump won. And I was like, huh, that is not a normal thing. Like, And I started just, I was one of those kids that asked why a lot, right? You can get to the root cause of just about any issue when you ask why five times. And, you know, long story short, when I looked at that, populism rises when there's economic depressions. A definition of an economic depression is two or more years of income decline or, 
or stagnation. And by that definition, half the workforce, the working and middle class, is in a 20-year-long economic depression. How could you not have the Bernie Trump phenomenon? Um, and it's 95% at least driven by health care. You don't have to connect 10 dots on that. Most, most people aren't connecting them. Yeah. You do a lot of public speakings, speaking at conferences and lectures and public gatherings. Do you get the feel that people are listening? Are you, is the message getting to them? Yeah. I mean, just by virtue of, of how this has grown and, you know, when we launched this accreditation program for the advisors in a month, we had more interest than we thought we might have after two years. Um, just blew us away. It took us a while, frankly, to dig out of it. I mean, it was a gold-plated problem, but it was a problem for us to deal with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, and, and I would say that the one word that I hear more than anything else when people come up to me after I talk is hope. Um, in fact, I somebody called me a hope merchant. I was like, oh, like, that's kind of funny. Um, so it's on my I think my LinkedIn or it Twitter I, I put profile it on, now. I put it on the intro. I said you were okay. identified as a hope merchant, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's one where, like, okay, if I can give hope, that's great. Um, and you know, realize no, this is not out of your control. You can do something about it. Um, and here's how many, many people like you and many organizations like you are doing it. And that's, you know, that's fuel for me. And, uh, and then it just comes back and they share the stories and, and we have this term, the health Rosetta dividend, like what happens when you don't squander money on healthcare, you know, and cause the clinicians are getting basically 25 cents of every dollar, 25 cents of every dollar. Like they're the value creators. That's absurd. What's that other 75% doing? Well, you get rid of a bunch of crap that isn't actually caregiving, and that can go towards kids' education. That can go towards salaries. That can go towards education. That like, there's so many things that are higher and better uses of it um, that it just it just is this constant, you know, fuel of of energy to me. Why don't you explain to us a little bit what is uh, uh, Rosetta Health and and what is your role in that organization? Just kind of uh, try and describe it for us. Yeah, I mean, really, what we're trying to do is rewire healthcare to put patients and caregivers at the center. Um, we have um, a dynamic where um, you know it's almost this sharecropper you know mode where carriers are controlled. You know, I call it carrier-controlled sharecropper caregiving, you know, where um, it's just a very problematic. And so we change that dynamic and put the, the sort of leverage shifting from insurers to caregivers in the community. So how do we do that? I, I like to describe things by way of analogy and one of the analogies I use that some people are familiar with is LEED, um, like LEED certified buildings. I think it's a pretty decent analogy in that the built environment is sort of like healthcare, where it's very entrenched and very local, slow to move. And LEED accredited professionals like architects and certified buildings and mainstream the once fringe idea. And so what we do at Health Rosetta is we accredit you know, in air quotes, architects of health plans. These are called benefits brokers, benefits consultants that are making a lot of decisions. I would argue they are probably the most underestimated role in the entire healthcare system and probably by extension, the entire U.S. economy. The great ones are worth their weight in gold. Unfortunately, most of the ones are are pitching themselves as buyer's agents, but paid like seller's agents or, you know, put it another way. If I was to sue you and also pay for your Attorney, that would be unthinkable, but that's the way healthcare has been working. And so we accredit the good ones. We normalize that that great behavior, and and then uh, over time, you know, we're not doing this, but you could imagine that like buildings get certified, uh, health plans get certified. We've got trillions of dollars of spend in healthcare with no objective third-party mark of quality. You know, you have things like lead, you have things like fair trade, and so. Um, you know, if you look at 
the generational shift that's going on. Millennials are already the largest chunk of the workforce. In five years, millennials and post-millennials are expected to be 75% of the workforce, and they get things like lead and fair trade. And so we see a day where, you know, if somebody's looking at a job or they're looking at a, you know, maybe a Medicare plan, they they would hopefully have, you know, if we build things the way we hope over time, you know, health is at a certified plan that is an objective um, mark that is quality, not some, you know, some old, you know, fancy name that uh, maybe has been around a long time, but actually is, is extracting value rather than adding value. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked before about uh, uh, some physical therapists that, you know, that are doing things uh, kind of in this new way of thinking and in a new way to kind of help reduce costs and so on. So what are they doing in your opinion that, that seems to uh, be cutting edge from the physical therapy side? Well, a lot of it's working closely with primary care, you know, kind of hand in glove. And there's different models there. Some are embedded literally in their clinic. Others just are working closely and coordinating with them. Um, and it's basically, you know, physical therapy is is sort of, you know, in a sense, primary care for um, kind of physical the physical pain and the must, you know, stuff that you could describe much better than I. Musculoskeletal right? issues, right? <laughs> yeah, because you know, of course, one of the biggest drivers of people going in to see a doctor is pain, and a lot of that pain is physical, you know, and muscle, you know, musculature um, pain. And so weaving that in, and you know, and good triage, like, oh, well, that maybe is a behavioral health issue. That's actually not, um, you know, a um, whatever spinal issue or something. Um, and so they've just done a really good job and, you know, they'll put fees at risk, right? They know that, um, you know, musculoskeletal spend is 20, 25% of spend. And like half of that is of what we're spending there. There's no evidence that it's the most effective approach. You know, one estimate is that 2% of the entire U.S. economy is tied up in non-evidence-based, non-value-add musculoskeletal procedures, you know, which is pretty crazy. Um, and so they just get at that and just put it in, get it right. Um, and so, you know, Rose and I mentioned before, yeah, for sure they've got the PT in the clinic, but what else do they do? They go out into the workplace and look at the ergonomics of the workplace, uh, you know, train people on preventive stuff and, you know, stuff that you know, you've forgotten more than I know about in that area. Um, but they, they just do that and yeah. they do it year after year and it just works exceptionally well. Yeah. We've got to latch onto those models and, and, uh, emulate them and, and go forward with what really works. And, uh, that's, yeah. that's great. You know, you were on the university of Washington track team as a mid distance runner, uh, so my first question related to that is, do you still run? And then my second question is, what lessons have you learned as a runner that you can use as a leader today? I still do run. In fact, I ran today. I In the last year, um, even though it was a gazillion years ago when I ran at the, the UW, um, I've been doing volunteer coaching at the, the local high school, which has been a, a real fun experience. Um, but... In terms of what I've learned, wow, you know, running in a lot of ways is a metaphor for life, um, and and I could probably, you know, talk for five hours on on that. But I would pull out of that uh, a, a couple things. One is, you know, you mentioned I was a middle distance runner, so like 800 was my best event. It's sort of like half sprint, half marathon, in a way, and in a lot of ways, work is that way where. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Um, and I know that this is a, you know, probably 20 year journey, but there are times when you got to like turn on the afterburners, uh, whether it's at the, you know, at a particular point in the race or to stay out of harm's way or whatever. Um, and of course there's all the, the, the goal setting that you do and how you deal with setbacks. Um, and so there's just so many lessons that you certainly get from competitive sports in general, um, but running in particular, um, you know, and, and, and how, um, you know, the mental side of 
uh, I, I've done a lot of sports. I was just a sports fanatic and I actually didn't pick up running until late in my high school, like my junior year. And, uh, the, the two sports that I think are most challenging mentally that I've experienced are running and golf, very different ways. Um, but you know, that mental side and how important that is. And, and, you know, you mentioned, I do some public speaking. Well, I still bring the mental preparation exercises that I went through before racing, before I go do a public talk. Like, I'm not going to take for granted that I go up there and just, you know, hit autopilot, you know, that would be like, just kind of going through the motions in a race. Like if, if, I'm going to fly somewhere. They're going to spend the money to, to get me there. Like I want to, you know, I'm not saying I'm, you know, Steve jobs or, you know, Eddie Murphy or something, but I'm going to bring what I can bring to the table, um, at the best level and, you know, make it pe- worth people's while. And also related. I, I know that you are an adventurer and a lover of the outdoors. So what does nature do for your goals and, and how do you channel that into your every day to day business life? You know, I think there's just a time where you got to dial back um, and, you know, that there is a, there are seasons, if you will. And that, that season may be over the course of a day, a week or a year, um, you know, and, and nature is very much a circular system that's got its, its ebbs and flows. Um, and so that's a big part of it. And just, you know, I, you know, I don't know if a great idea has ever come inside of a conference room or a cubicle. Um, and so I, you know, you get out and I've got just, you know, there was a guilt that I had for a long time when I'd be getting out on a, a run or a ski or whatever. Uh, cause I used to, you know, um, live basically on the edge of, of, um, you know, wilderness where I could backcountry ski. And now I'm like, no, actually that's where a lot of the great ideas come. Um, is in that and the Japanese, I may butcher the term, but they have a, a term Shinrin Roku, um, and it's called forest bath, um, is the rough translation. And I think it's very much that way where you get out there, it's like clears the mind and you do need to get away and have perspective um, I think to have a big impact on business, um, you just, you, you need that, that space. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to make an assumption here so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like in your earlier career, you were in bigger organizations and had a lot of people to manage and work with and so on. And now, uh, you know, what you're doing is, is much more independent and probably a lot more alone time. Uh, when you think back on it, what, uh, what, what, what brings you the most joy? Are, are you, do you like working uh, more by yourself these days, or do you miss that team interaction thing that you had on the day to day? What's your feelings on that? I mean, your assumption's right in terms of, you know, I had a lot more people with sort of line authority over. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the big change was, you know, I had people around me all the time and a lot of meetings, a lot of people working for me and, and all that type of thing. So it was a very constant flow. Whereas I kind of go from, you know, Dave in the cave, you know, sort of working through stuff. Um, and then it's sort of hyper, you know, uh, out there with a lot of people and, and, you know, at an event and all that. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I do like that better. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to be Dave in the cave sometimes, but I would not be happy to be there all the time. Um, and so, you know, when you get out, you get that perspective and, and, and then, you know, now, uh, this wrinkle of, of doing some coaching is another one where, you know, you get out in the community, the whole other slice of people. And, and again, I think before I would have been kind of feeling guilty about, quote, taking time away from work. But I'm like, no, you know, it's, it's about, um, you know, it's not about volume. It's about value and impact and quality. Um, and so sometimes some, you know, whatever interaction with a kid can actually trigger some idea totally unrelated. Um, 
I, I like change over time. And so, you know, there may be other times we'll have that. And, and, you know, the other big change is my team interaction stuff is, it's a, it's, it's virtual team. So there's a broader team, but in terms of my core team, we have a small team, you know, that's all, not all, but a lot of it is, is, um, you know, digital, you know, over zoom, over phone, whatever, over Slack. Um, so, you know, it's nice to have both. Well, uh, I love the visual. And now when I think of you up there in Bellingham, I can visualize Dave in the cave. So that, that that's great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, usually at this time in the interview, I always ask my guests uh, to give us a pearl of wisdom. So in relation to leadership, what pearl of wisdom can you give our listeners? I don't know if this qualifies, but I would say, you know, the least common thing is common sense. Um, and sometimes the, you know, the more you have life experience, um, I think I've, I've learned the more you should trust your instincts on that, you know, which at one time seemed sort of illogical, like something that would hit you. And, you know, there's the stuff that Malcolm Gladwell has written about where, you know, you, you put in 10,000 hours on something, you actually end up having pretty good judgment, what seemed like a snap judgment. Um, and something that, you know, it's very easy to overcomplicate things. Um, so that's what immediately comes to mind, but if anything else comes to mind, I'll, I'll pop it out, but that's, that's sort of my initial thought. Okay. That's great. Well, Dave, uh, I, I really have appreciated, you know, I look at, uh, over my career and, and over my life, really, uh, people I meet that have impact on me and influence me and, and, uh, you know, brings me joy and, and, uh, piques my curiosity. And, and I certainly put you in, in that category as someone I've met and I've really enjoyed what you're doing. I, I see your fight in the good fight and, uh, I wish you, uh, uh, you know, every, every good luck I can in that sense. So thanks just so much for what you do. And, uh, it's been great talking with you today and I hope you continue the crusade. And if there's anything I can do or any other people that I know that can help you uh, forward that on, um, I'd be happy to do it. Well, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun, and uh, definitely will take you up on that that offer. And and thank you for you know introducing me, frankly, into the PT community in a way that I wasn't connected before. Going back to the the Graham sessions and, uh, you know, the sort of my people, you know, if you will, even though I'm not a PT, um, you know, tend to be people who are, are very, uh, solution oriented, very active and, and, you know, very much want what the best, what's best for the community. And so it's, it's logical that you would be moving into executive coaching the way you are. And so, uh, thanks, of course, for letting me be on the show, too. You know, and I, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but speaking of the Graham sessions that you did come a couple of years ago, uh, I hear your name brought up all the time from people that were in that group because not only did you give a great presentation, but as a keynote speaker, you stayed the entire conference and sat in on other sessions and listened and learned, and, and you, you just don't know how big an impact that was that people saw that someone of your caliber was willing to uh, take the time to listen to our issues and learn from them. And so um, I think uh, you're, you're well revered in that group for uh, having done that. So I just thought I'd share that with you. Oh, well, it's a pleasant surprise to hear that, but definitely appreciate that. I, I learned a ton and, and that's part of, you know, the, the system change model that we've adhered to. It really, it starts with deep immersion um, and, you know, the thing is people are very capable of solving problems um, if you actually study what they're doing and listening to it. And then, you know, where I find I can add some value is is being a systems thinker is, OK, well, how do we, you know, massively replicate that? Um, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to a lot more collaboration with folks. And I, I do periodically get something on. Oh, I, you know, heard you at Graham Sessions or met you there. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, and some people, of course, I had conversations with others, many I didn't. So I didn't even know they were there. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was great. And thanks again for inviting me there. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much again, Dave, and uh, have a great rest of your day. And I appreciate you being on the show very much. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To hear the entire series of interviews, search iTunes podcasts for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. To view videos of many of my interviews, search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership.
with Steve Anderson. You can also visit my website, which is orange.coaching.com, and that's orange, the word dot, coaching.com, and go to the Media Center, where all episodes of the video and podcast episodes are available.